When the Missouri House reconvenes next year, Republicans will have a commanding majority. And one member of this exclusive club is State Representative Kirk Matthews. The St. Louis County Republican joins us on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, eight seven, six, six five, five four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair yes, to I say. I say hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joe Manis is off today, so as my special guest host, we have... Jerry Buscaren, thanks for having me. Thank you for, for filling in for Joe. And as our special guest today, all the way from around Pacific, Missouri, yes, we have as our special guest today... I'm Kirk Matthews, state representative from District 110. And, and we wanted to ask you before we got into your life story, how is Pacific in that part of St. Louis County, Franklin County doing? Because both Dury and I covered the flooding there at the beginning of this year and the end of last year. We know it was a, it was a pretty devastating sure. flood, but we also know that people were coming together pretty well from, from what we saw. The communities, both Eureka and Pacific are in my district. And as you guys know, you covered the flood. Both were hit pretty hard. They were hit in a little bit different ways. Eureka really uh, was hit more in their in a commercial district. There was some residential, and, and I don't want to discount that. They were hit hard. But there was a there was some 280 homes in Pacific that were um, uninhabitable for some period of time, and the community spirit of coming around and helping those people was astounding. I mean, I was out there throwing sandbags with with uh, people, leaders from the community. Everybody was coming together. Um, I think the Pacific area has had a more difficult time recovering because of the nature of the damage being more residential than commercial, I think. And But they are getting there. They had some hiccups with FEMA, um, and they're still trying to get some, um, some of that disaster relief uh, funding uh, to flow. So they're not out of the woods completely yet, but they are still working hard at it. And I know I've worked with several of the aldermen there, and and they've they have a newly hired uh, city manager in the city of Pacific, which is seems to be a very good thing too. And and that's helped because uh, the flood happened at a time when they were without a city manager, so. It was a kind of a perfect storm, no pun intended. I'll always remember this little three-year-old girl, um, and I met her mom, and say, they said that she had her third birthday in a Red Cross shelter. No, and uh, it was just really – but apparently the, the group there, like they had a little party for her, brought her presents. It was really sweet. Well, that was the amazing thing, to see the community come together to help each other. Uh, the senior center there that I've done a lot of work with in the past, uh, Tim Baker helps run that senior center and the, their ability to help impact that community and help them get back on their feet, provide meals and places to stay. It was it was pretty amazing. And is the Pacific Opera House fully <coughs> functional again? It is, yes. That's yeah. great to hear. That's a great uh, venue. Uh, you, sounds like you've been there. I did a whole feature on it. So it's a, just a neat building, has a lot of historical relevance to it. And it was hit pretty hard in this flood. It was. And uh, it, it's it's been a gathering place in Pacific for, for decades. And Harry S. Truman once played piano yes, in it. Yes, he did. That's so right. that's its claim to fame. So we're glad to we're we're glad to hear that there has some progress on that. Obviously, when there's a flood that big, it's going to take a while for for people to completely recover. But as uh, we mentioned on the outset, Dury and I covered that 
and the people there extensively. So we wanted to get an update on that. Sure. Thank you for asking. So um, before we, again, ask you about you, can you just give our listeners a sense of what your district encompasses? Sure. Uh, The 110th district basically takes in the southern half of Wildwood, Mm -hmm. all of the city of Eureka as far south as the Merrimack River, uh, so which is also the border of Jefferson County. So as long as we're in St. Louis County down there, we're in my district. And a portion of eastern Franklin County that includes most of the city limits of Pacific and and a little bit of uh, territory heading north out of Pacific. Uh, uh, so that's that's pretty much encompasses the district. And it's a heavily Republican district, so much so that I don't think a Democrat has, has run recently. And even if they did, their chances of winning are, are pretty low. From my understanding, that's uh, that's right. We have, uh, I think, about a sixty-five percent Republican district there, or so. I did, as we as we were visiting uh, before the show, I did have a Democratic opponent uh, in my first run in in twenty fourteen, um, and they were disqualified by the Secretary of State for some reason. I I never did find out why. I think that the I think the person maybe owned a business in the district but didn't reside in the uh, district or something like that. So it was my suspicion, but I never did really find out why. So tell us a little bit about yourself, what you did before you ran for office in 2014, and what kind of prompted you to get involved in the whirly, crazy world of Missouri politics? <laughs> well, I think you describe it fairly accurately, Jason. Um, so I had never run for elected office before, and uh, I'd been active in helping uh helping people run, working polls for uh, Republican candidates and, and that sort of thing. Um, but I never just never really thought that much about running, just a little bit. I'd been asked before to run for a uh, first state representative. And um, my background is actually healthcare. In the mid-80s, I began working in the field of uh, uh, healthcare recruiting. I recruited physicians. And my clients were hospitals, and I worked for one of the larger uh, physician recruiting companies in the country that's, that's based here in the St. Louis area. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And uh, in 1997, I left there and started my own uh, company. With a, I had a partner. Uh, Terry Orff was my partner. And we started a, a physician practice management company. And the physicians that we hired and contracted to hospitals were hospitalists. They specialize in the field of hospital medicine. So what is a hospitalist? Yeah, that's a good question. So a hospitalist is a physician that only cares for the hospitalized patient. They don't have an office where you could see them for any ambulatory needs. Uh, they, so the idea really got started around the idea that um, it would be a more efficient way to deliver care. So, for example, Jason, if under the traditional model where your internist or your family physician was caring for you both as an outpatient and if you happen to be hospitalized, they would probably come and make hospital rounds at dark 30 in the morning and uh, then return to their office because they'd have 30 or 40 patients to see in the office that day. If your second day in the hospital, your test results came back and said you needed to, you were cleared to go home, your physician would not see those test results or sign those test results at best the end of the day and sometimes not until the following morning. So you would be spending time in the hospital without cause. As a, uh, the hospitalist model basically ha- has a physician in the hospital all the time so they can be more efficient with getting discharge orders signed, et cetera. Their scope of practice has expanded greatly over the 
uh, 15, well, more than that now, tw- nearly 20 years uh, uh, since I started my company. But uh, that's what we did. We would produce these hospital pro- hospital medicine programs for hospitals all over the country. You actually weren't supposed to be the Republican candidate in your district in 2014. There was another candidate. I believe his name was Dennis Broadbooks. Is that his name? That's correct. Yeah. And I've actually met him several times, so it's kind of embarrassing. I I couldn't pronounce his last name that much. Dennis is a good guy. Yeah. He had actually filed to uh, succeed House Speaker Tim Jones in the Missouri House. He was the only candidate from either party to file once filing closed. So he was effectively the state rep-elect after filing closed. That's correct. But then he withdrew for, for reasons I believe are, are personal in nature we don't have to get into right now. Mm-hmm. And you step forward. So my question for you is, there aren't that many people who kind of, you know, at the beginning of a year don't expect to be a state rep and don't have any plans to be a state rep and then become <laughs> a state rep pretty much without too much trouble. I mean, oftentimes some of these seats are very hotly contested and literally millions of dollars are spent. How did that feel to be in that situation, where, which I just described? Well, it was uh, unique, to say the least, and I think you hit the nail on the head. It was a very unique situation. Um, Dennis had actually asked me to run before he filed. Uh, he's a friend of mine. I've known Dennis for a long time. And uh, when I learned that he needed to step down from the race, um, it was uh, very surprising to me. Um, and it's not something that I, as I mentioned before, I had given some consideration, but nothing serious, certainly not in 2014. But I was in a place where I had sold my business and um, I do consulting work and uh, executive recruiting work now. And so I had some flexibility with my time and my income. And uh, I, I had reached the place where I thought, you know, I was, I'm, I was concerned with the direction of uh, the state and the country, quite frankly. I have seven grandkids today. And uh, the rate of change in the, the way the country has been going over my lifetime, I'm, I'm uh, not – I was not one of the younger freshmen in my freshman class in legislative class. Uh, the rate of change seem, seems to be picking up, and I thought that if this continued rate of change continues through the life of my grandchildren, we might not recognize this country and our state by the time they get to be my age. So it was one of those deals where it was literally an opportunity to to step up. I had no idea whether there would be opposition. Had Dennis stepped down after a certain date, and I think that that date was uh, – I don't recall. It was June something yeah. or other – then it would have gone to a committee appointment process. Yes. But as it was, uh, he did not step down in the right time frame for that, and it became an open filing for anybody to yeah. refile. And and you filed? I did. And, and as you mentioned before, there's a Democrat who filed who was disqualified, and State Representative Kirk Matthews, here we are. It took a little while to get used to hearing that. I'm sure it does. <laughs> Can I ask you, um, when you say rate of change in your lifetime, what are you referring to specifically? Well, I, the way I look at the world from a pretty conservative perspective, and I think that the the what has con, what it was considered when I was uh, in a, as a young adult, when I was a high school kid growing up in West St. Louis County, I grew up in my district. Went to Pond Elementary School and Lafayette High School out in West St. Louis County. 
what was considered to be conservative then versus a moderate then versus a liberal thinker at that point or a progressive thinker, I think that has changed. I think uh, in the I'm 59 years old. I think in my lifetime, I've seen the center of that what has has moved substantially to the left, in my opinion, and that's kind of what I'm talking about. Almost across any topic, if you take any topic that you want to discuss, I would. Uh, my perception was that the center that the, that the right was losing its voice and that the center had moved considerably to the left at a fairly rapid rate over my lifetime. So you're in the Missouri legislature now. I, don't, I, I believe you won re-election because you didn't have an opponent. Um, I, I wound up with a write-in write opponent, actually, oh, was that, it, that officially filed with the state and everything. That how many cool. votes did the write-in candidate get? I think he got 300. Out of yeah. what, like 10,000 votes? Um, my tally was like 15,005. Wow. Like that. So, well, that write-in candidate clearly needed to do more work because uh, they were not successful. So we don't know what committees you're going to be on as as of this recording, but you have been on the House Budget Committee, and obviously you know quite a bit about health care. Dury, I think we were going to talk a little bit about the the, the nexus between budgetary stuff and health care stuff, so I'll, I'll let you uh, take it from here. Sure. I mean, how, at least since you've been serving, how has your background in health care um, affected how you see health policy when you got, when it comes across your desk? I think it's a really good question. Um, in typical government fashion, when so when you uh, when you uh, win a seat in the legislature, uh, you get to submit to your caucus leader, in this case, the Speaker of the House, what your uh, interests are, et cetera. So I put some health care committees uh, on my uh, request list. And in typical government fashion, I didn't get any health care committees. <laughs> so I was assigned to budget. I was assigned to transportation. I was assigned – I've been served as vice chair of general laws, et cetera. But sitting on the budget committee, I have been exposed to some health care issues, obviously, as you would suspect. And my back, my my healthcare background is from the per provider perspective, meaning the physicians, the allied health professionals, and the hospitals. I have a pretty clear, uh, a lot of experience in that field. I'm learning more about the payer side. I had to deal with payers a lot, with managed care companies, et cetera, et cetera, when I owned my own business. Um, and I think that what, what my experience as it relates to the legislature is, and in particular, obviously, this, the conversation would turn toward Medicaid, right, which has been a very difficult subject for our state. Our Medicare's, Medicaid spending has continued to, to go up and up and up and up. And while we have uh, resisted the formal uh, expansion of the o Obamacare Medicaid plan and the exchanges. So um, everyone that's come and lobbied me, and I've spoken to and that happens frequently, as you might suspect, uh, and talks about their desire to see Medicaid expanded. I say, look, in my perspective, from a managing a group of providers, we employed 100 to 150 physicians at any given point in time in, in, my, uh, in my company's lifetime, uh, is that I viewed Medicaid as a deeply flawed system, as a dramatically flawed system that – and. I would not be opposed to expanding Medicaid on if if a couple things would happen, that we could fix the flaws and that we could do a better job of identifying the truly needy in our state. I don't think we do a good job of that. I think those are, you know, people that have truly limited options that are in true desperate need of help are the people that we need to be helping. 
But I can give you examples from my healthcare experience. Um, we helped several hospitals in the St. Louis area uh, start their hospital medicine programs during in, when I owned my company. And on more than one occasion, we had the privilege of caring for notables, people that uh, who's if I mentioned their name, which I of course can't and won't do, everyone in St. Louis would know their name. But they were a Medicaid enrollee because they had transferred all their assets into uh, other hands, trusts, et cetera, and yet they were taking their health care on the state. And abuses like that I de- Are you need- specifically speaking about elderly people who spend down their assets to quali- to be a dual qualifier for Medicaid Medicare? Yes, yeah, that okay. but it, kind of on steroids because they are people that I knew that everyone would know didn't have to spend down their assets but they but they disguise their assets or they move their assets. So wealthy so, people that you knew were dual enrolled Medicare Medicaid to pay for end of life care? Yep. Well, not into life care, just their normal health care. Okay. They were, they were a Medicaid, Medicare enrolled. And then some of them weren't even Medicare uh, age. Um, I, I think that we have too many perverse incentives in, baked into a lot of our um, uh, entitlement programs. I think, um, you know, when, when a single mother has more incentive to have another baby out of wedlock, and if the father enters the household in a, in a marriage arrangement, she loses money. That's, in my mind, that's a perverse incentive. Uh, you know, that we're not incentivizing the right things. So when I talk about the system uh, identifying the truly needy, I think we ought to uh, have a system that really helps people up and not simply help them out and and continue to incentivize uh, life choices that that are not conducive to them getting off of Medicaid. Um, from the standpoint of the system being broken, um, I mean, <clears throat> God, you could almost name the state. Uh, we would have when I was operating my business at any point in time, we would have accounts receivable from um, from Medicaid programs in various states around the country. Frequently, we would call and say, you know, what's the status of this claim or this batch of claims that we're getting need to get reimbursed on? And the response was, we're out of money right now. Call us back in six weeks. Maybe if we maybe if we have some money, then we'll put you on the list or we'll or we'll get you some money. And if this if the government purchase of health care expects to engage private practice physicians, they they can't operate a business that way. So. I'm not interested in expanding a what I see as a terribly flawed system uh, without fixing the flaws and really trying to make sure that the system helps those that truly need the help. And I think that especially for the me- dual eligible Medicare Medicaid thing, um, there was an attempt at a fix last year mm-hmm. in which they <coughs> raised the um, basically the, the it's, asset. Yeah, they they raised limit. the asset limit. Um, <coughs> So a lot of people, when they're uh, reaching their end of their life, they have to go into a nursing home. Um, but it's it's one of those things where if a family um, is looking at a very large, unforeseen healthcare expense, um, a lot of people will spend down their assets so they qualify for a either uh, like a Medicare Medicaid dual eligible coverage, um, and. I think that it 
happens, I think that what people realized when they were writing this law is that it happens very, very frequently. I don't know. I can't fact check uh, the claims that it's very wealthy people who do this. Um, oh, I know I'm not it's, suggesting that it, it's I, only wealthy people that do that because right. I don't believe that at all. I know a lot of people, <clears throat> it, it's kind of average, you know, everyday people and they spend down their assets. Um, and it's really painful for a lot of people to do this because they don't have much to leave for their children. And so the uh, law was passed to raise the asset limit, but it wasn't by much. No, I mean, it was it, it like, was, and they uh, didn't, they didn't really do anything to fix that loop, like any kind of loophole that would make that possible, like transferring your assets mm-hmm. or something. They didn't do anything to fix that another way from what I could gather. No, I don't disagree with you. I think that the, the asset limit is, is still low. Um, but I think that, you know, they, it, it's very difficult to pick out one element of the Medicaid issue and, and address that that has any kind of meaningful way across the system. I think we're going to have – it really does need uh, a much broader comprehensive overhaul in my opinion. So one of the other things that I've heard often from especially people on the House Budget Committee on the Republican side is that the cost of the Medicaid program is going up, 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 and up, and that is going to be making the budgetary situation difficult. It's going up even though the eligibility in Missouri for for adults is is, is probably the lowest it can be. For children, it's, it's higher, and for disabled, it's higher. But um, – do you foresee Republicans trying to do anything to the Medicaid program as a way of, of controlling the budget, or is it pretty much so fixed in to the to the budgetary system right now that changing it is is going to be basically impossible without running afoul of federal laws or regulations? Well, I think that the because of the dramatic increase in spending uh, in in the Medicaid portion of the budget they're going to we're going to have to do something. I mean, excuse me, pharmacy costs uh, in particular continue to rise exponentially. We're going to have to do something budgetary. It it may be it may be painful, it may be easier now with uh, a Republican governor. Um, but I think it, it we can't in my opinion just take the uh, position that you stated it's just too deeply ingrained, we can't fix it, let's just, we can't, we're going to have to try and do something. Well, I think, I mean, for a little bit of context here, I think some of the reasons that uh, at least the Medicaid Oversight Committee has pointed to is the increasing cost of health care overall. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we've also had, uh, like, the hepatitis C cure, which was incredibly expensive. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it exists, that's great, uh, but it's also, um, you know, it, it that cost is borne by insurance providers. Um, and then also, I think, managed care. Uh, there's been an expansion of that, and it doesn't appear to have a huge cost savings because there's administrative um, costs that go on top of that. Yeah, I'm, um, you know, we're, we are going to expand Medicaid to the to the borders. You know, we had the I-70 corridor for the managed Medicaid. The managed, you're expanding yeah. managed Medicaid managed, to the borders. Expanding managed N- Medicaid. Not the qualification. Correct, okay. correct. We're not, yeah. uh, we should just. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Because okay. yeah. <laughs> that can be confusing. Yeah, that it is confusing. Um, and so, you know, when you talk to the the, the uh, managed managed care companies, uh, we just went through that bid process, and uh, um, 
lost exchanged one of those companies you know uh, for a different uh, provider um, and we'll see if they can if they can effectively move the needle on cost containment um, and what that means when we expand manage Medicaid uh, beyond the i70 corridor we'll see how that you know I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, as it as a general and I've said this to everybody the managed care companies that have come talk to me um, managed care, I think, presents its problems in a lot of places from a provider perspective, which is my experience. But uh, I think with the in managed Medicaid, there are some uh, some valuable value adds that I think managed care can bring to the table. So before before we get to anything else, can you, Derek, can you explain what managed care is for or either one of you? Sure. When managed care is just for our listeners who don't know. Yeah. Okay. So um, when you uh, have coverage through Medicaid, it's a public um, insurance program paid for by state and federal money um, for people who are poor, disabled, or pregnant. Um, And basically, in some parts of the state right now, um, Medicaid is paid for by fee-for-service. So if I go to the doctor's appointment, that um, doctor's appointment is billed directly to the state. Um, If I'm on managed care, so if I live in St. Louis, um, I go to my doctor's appointment that doctor um, bills my insurance provider, which is a private company, um, possibly Centene. I think is it Centene? There are three. We, there are three. Our state, we have three contracts let. Uh, uh, MoHealth, uh, might not double check yeah. the name of that company, but yeah. uh, then Centene and now United. Right. And, and they are paid by the state for my overall care. And I also probably have a caseworker who is coordinating my care um, to say, okay, well, you know, you have COPD, so let's make sure you get to this appointment and this appointment. Um, There are uh, some preliminary evidence suggests that it does not cut down on um, the number of times people visit the emergency room for a non-emergency. That's been a critique. Um, But I think when we talk about Medicaid expansion, I think another thing to bring up is that... um, There's a lot of evidence in a lot of states that it can actually reduce the cost of care um, when people aren't waiting for their condition to get really real to an emergent level because they, you know, if they don't have coverage, they're pushing off that care until they absolutely have to go to the ER. And it's easier to manage that condition um, with regular appointments if you have a chronic condition like diabetes, for example. Well, like the the key to providing efficient health care is providing the right care at the right time in the right location. Mm-hmm. And what you said earlier is absolutely true. There's been it's been very challenging to find evidence that the managed care has reduced the the use of emergency room as the as the source of first care. You know, regardless of the condition. And I think that's something that that, that I know the managed care companies are are working to uh, to get their arms around. It's also, as you mentioned, caseworkers that can be provided. I think this is the place where um, uh, managed Medicaid can can help 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 direct the patient to the right care at the right time at the right location. Um, it's it's just it's a matter of in healthcare we talk about utilization. It's just getting the proper utilization, and I think that's the benefit of managed care. I hope it can help us rein in our our, uh, our costs because the costs are going through the roof in our state. You asked about managed care in general. Uh, 
managed care exists outside of Medicaid, you know, in the in the adult in the adult population, well, in the general healthcare population mm-hmm. uh, and and the industry as well. Um, so, yeah. So I wanted to shift gears to uh, the new legislative reality with a Republican governor coming in. Uh, Eric Greitens will be sworn into office in early January. You'll no longer have a Democratic governor to kick around anymore you, to override his vetoes or not override his vetoes. I, I think generally before we get into more specific topics, how is that going to change the way Republicans who control the legislature by huge majorities operate given that they no longer have to get to 109 or 23 anymore. They can just pass things by simple majorities. What, what's kind of your What's kind of your feeling about about Greitens? Well, it's really uh, well about Eric Greitens. I think he has. I think we have a chance to really advance some legislation that have, has been sort of had the the brake pedal on it for a long time. Um, uh, I've actually heard uh, Governor Elect Greitens himself say, "Look, we've." Having a majority in in both chambers w- with uh, a Democratic governor has been like having driving uh, having a race car with the parking brake on, and I think I think we can we can take off the parking brake now and advance legislation. I think we need to do that thoughtfully. I think we need to do that carefully. I last thing I want to see us do is get uh, power drunk and just run stuff through. I I don't want to see the legislature. Uh, File you know ten thousand bills because now we have a Republican governor that we think we can get that passed. I think we need to be very thoughtful about what we do, but I'm I'm excited. I think it's it's um, the day after the election. Woke up thinking about things very differently. I mean, it affects it affects a lot. I mean, we have caucus members as as you know that we have a hundred. It may be more difficult to manage a hundred and seventeen member caucus than a than a ninety member caucus in yes. some ways. You know because we have caucus members that we do not agree on everything, and that's to be expected. And, and one of the things that one of the things that I, I thought about after Greitens won is I think people are going to be able to vote more independently now. There's not going to be this huge pressure to vote party line on everything. If all you have to do is get to 82, I think there still will be pressures from various entities to to do priorities. Sure. But, but I think it does allow legislators have a little bit more independence on voting on bills. Is that fair to say or not really? No, I think it is fair to say. I think, you know, I mean, the the one that comes to everyone's mind is labor, right? Mm-hmm. And, and we had several labor caucus members that didn't vote with the caucus on labor issues. And I, I think it really changes the dynamic for them. I mean, they, they can... Uh, be m- much more confident in their vote. They maybe not as much consternation with their vote if they need to vote their district or whatever. Um, it changes a lot. It really does. What are some of your priorities going forward this year? Um, going forward this year, I'm going to carry a few a few bills that I carried last year. Um, couple of them around what I believe to be uh, help our state with economic development issues. I carried the transportation network company, the TNC bill last year. Um, I really, I'm really excited about, I think the, I think Speaker Richardson is um, feeling very uh, energized by the possibilities of that bill. Can and you tell us a little bit about yes, it? Yes, I was just going to Because I actually don't know. Well, oh, that's okay. <laughs> transportation network companies are companies like Uber and Lyft. And currently in our state, there does not exist a statewide regulatory platform for them to operate. So if you're an Uber driver um, in 
Kansas City, Missouri. You have a different regulatory environment. If you drive outside of Kansas City and drive up to St. Joe with a fare, you might be illegal in St. Joe or in Platte County. Technically, I think it's illegal in St. Louis right now, in St. Louis County. I don't think it's ever been approved yet. I hear people all the time say they've used Uber, so it's happening. I've used Uber. Yeah, I've only used Uber in other cities, but continue. Yeah, no, no, there's... So they are operated in St. Louis on a limited basis, and uh, there actually is a lawsuit right now between the city of St. Louis and uh, Uber. But it's not just an Uber bill. It is a transportation network company bill. There are other companies in that space yeah. like Lyft, et cetera. And, um, but Uber alone said uh, our, legislative, our legislation passes, and there will be – they anticipate a minimum of 10,000 new small businesses created in, in by independent Uber, Uber drivers in our state. So by doing a statewide regulatory system, would you basically erase all the local regulations and basically put it under one big state mandate, essentially? It would be a statewide platform. So they would get their – they would uh, – Uber would register with the state. The drivers would register with the uh, – with Uber uh, or, the, or the transportation network company, and they would be – basically not have the fear of crossing a county line or a municipality and suddenly being illegal. So what would you... I have a similar, I have a similar bill yeah. that, I've been, that I uh, filed last year in the world of electrical contracting. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about getting your license to work as an electrician, but as a contractor. Um, I filed a bill that I intend to file this year that would create a statewide regulatory platform for electrical contractors because currently there are electrical contractors in our state that have to apply for and maintain upwards of 90 or 100 different licenses with every municipality that they choose to do business in. Hmm. And that, that's, that's, an, that's an example of uh, a regulatory climate that just is not conducive to small business. What do you think that the lay of the land is going to be on some social issues like restricting abortion rights or, or guns? Because it seems like even though you had a Democratic governor, the legislature was still overriding the, the governor on it. It seems with a Republican governor who is purportedly opposed to abortion <clears throat> rights and supportive of, of less restrictive gun laws, you'll have a pretty you know, free reign to, to, to do things on that in that space. What What's kind of the lay of the land on that? Well, there hasn't been, you know, in our caucus meetings, uh, even since the election, the caucus priorities were, as stated by leadership, were tended to fall into uh, labor reform, tort reform, which that's another issue that you asked about my, my priorities. I do have a tort reform bill that changes how punitive damages are adjudicated, uh, which I think is a, a very interesting bill. I think it's a, but so the priorities when you speak to the leadership, they'll talk about tort reform, they'll talk about um, labor. labor reform yeah. and education reform. So I don't know that there's, you know, on the abortion rights issue, you know, obviously there's a federal, uh, we have Roe v. Wade, right? So there are, I don't know how much more we can continue to restrict. I mean, I would be in favor of that if we, if we do, if we could. Um, Gun, uh, the gun bill that we just had the big uh, override, uh, override of, yeah. on. I mean, um, I don't know what the next gun bill. Those aren't those aren't bills that I carried. I yeah. supported them. 
Yeah. Um, well, I just <clears> mentioned <throat> that because Dury and I were kind of talking uh, offhandedly uh, uh, before the show that since I started covering Missouri politics, there's been usually a, a bill to restrict abortion access every other year, every year. And they've all passed because there's usually a bipartisan coalition in both chambers to support that. And I'm just wondering, as you kind of alluded to, how much further you can go. There's only one abortion clinic, Planned Parenthood clinic in the state that's operating right now. Well, uh, no, there's a lot of clinics that operate. There's yeah. only one clinic in the state that can prescribe the abortion pill or give a surgical abortion. Thank you for correcting Sorry. me about that. <laughs> but it just seems like at some point you, you kind of run out of things to do before you, you try to ban it outright, and that runs into the Roe v. Wade right. situation. So so you're, you're not seeing that as a priority over the next couple of years at this point? Well, I, it, you know, for those that are on the uh, in the pro-life camp, I think that the ultimate banning of abortion would be our ultimate goal. You know, uh, I don't see I don't see how much farther we can go as a state until there's a change at, at uh, in the in the Supreme Court. I'm kind of w- wondering how do you when we have I think there's like 36 pages of Missouri abortion law right now. And um, we saw, like, cuts, funding cuts this year to Planned Parenthood, which prescribes a lot of um, contraception and things that prevent unwanted pregnancies and therefore reduce the number of abortions that happen. So I've always, I mean, I'm mostly interviewing people in the health and science world. Mm -hmm. And I think that one thing I haven't yet understood is what the ideal is. You know, if if we're cutting back both... Um, access to abortion, but also access to preventive methods. What's what's the solution here? What's what are we striving? What is what is your camp striving for? I don't think I don't think there's any would be any objection if Planned Parenthood said we're no longer going to perform abortions. We're going to actually perform things that what most people I believe think of as women's health. You know, the the number of mammograms that. Uh, that they perform is minuscule compared to their abortions. And they talk about the percentages. That's that's not true. The number of abortions they do. You have to count. You have to take a look at how they're doing the counting. Are they counting every patient? Are they counting everything that they do for every patient? Um, So, I mean, you have to take a look at the numbers. Uh, yeah. To really understand it. And for for context, the um, what, at least according to Planned Parenthood, um, generally it's, I think, 3% of the procedures that a Planned Parenthood affiliate performs mm. are abortions. That includes things that are the, like the abortion pill, which goes up to 98%. Ask Planned Parenthood what percentage of the, of the actual patients that walk in receive an abortion. So, Not as a percentage of the procedures, because if they walk in, because if you, if you look at how they count their numbers... It will be if you walk in and you get uh, anything, if you get, uh, I don't know what all they, I mean, they count every single thing they do for that patient as a procedure. But if you count, if you ask them what percentage of the patients that walk in your door get uh, get abortions and just come back and see what that number is. Where do you get that information? I mean, what's the number that you're working off of when you make these votes? When I make these votes, we haven't had any votes uh, on other than helping to defund Planned Parenthood, which I would love to, which I would love to do if they're going to cont- remain in the abortion business. Right, but I See, guess what percentage are you working to, on for that? For me, it comes down to when do you recognize that life exists and what rights does that life have? Because if if you if you say that the the newly conceived fetus 
has no rights. When do their rights begin? You know, if we were to listen to uh, Hillary Clinton, you can you can abort that baby the day before they're due. That's not true. That is that's she said they have no rights. She said they have no rights. I don't remember her saying that. I don't think no. And and to you, be to seen, be clear, in this country, in this country, at least in every state that I have been able to look up the law for, abortions, late-term abortions, which would be I think after the second tri- is it during the second trimester? I Tell me Basically, where Basically, you illegal. can't you can't get an abortion after the second trimester unless it's to save the health of the mother. If you end a pregnancy on the in the ninth month, that's called a C-section. No. <laughs> I mean, but and I think, you, but I, I mean, really, I, I really think you can that look up the video. A, look, Google a video for Hillary Clinton saying that the the unborn child has no rights under our law up until the uh, the date that they're due. You can find the video. Okay. Well, I'm not aware of this video. I'm not aware of it either, I but think, I will Google it. I think we are talking – I think that this a debate in this country has – I mean, I, I do feel like the two sides of this issue, they, they're operating with different facts, you know? And, and I – and that worries me because I think that that makes it really hard um, to have a civil dialogue in this country that actually is about health care. And, and, you know, what we're doing. Um, and so, I mean, going back to the, the number of abortions or the percentage of women who receive abortions at Planned Parenthood, I mean, where, where do you get those numbers? I have read several studies about this. There are different organizations that publish these numbers. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen videos by PragerU. Um, I, would, I would look at that if I were you. Videos? I can't remember exactly. Well, they're like uh, – uh, Educational videos, yeah. Okay, and yeah. then they and they did a survey of Planned Parenthood. Have you ever heard patients. of Prager? You seen any of their any of their videos? I haven't. No, I haven't okay. either. No. Yeah. Take a look at some of them. It's not they 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 speak to all issues, social issues, fiscal issues, economic issues. Okay, um, but I mean, again, what percentage of a- ask ask them yourself? Ask find out. Maybe prove me wrong. Go and find out. Ask them what percentage of women that walk in the door wind up with abortions. They, they told me that it was 6% in St. Louis because they are the only no, clinic. No, they, they told you that it was 6% of procedures that they do, right? I think that is the language. Yeah, I will give I, you that. Yeah, just find out. Are there any other issues that you expect to be a major priority when the legislature comes back in January? Yeah, I think tort reform will be. Yeah, can you right. kind of elaborate on that? Well, I'll give you an example of my bill. Um, so right now, in any civil action, the uh, plaintiff can file for punitive damages before any discovery, before any understanding uh, that there is a cause for punitive damages. And um, what that does is and, – and, and literally every lawyer will do it in, in a sense out of practicing defensive law, right? Because they don't want to later discover that there could have been punitive damages into the case and they've done their client a disservice by not filing at the first pleading. But the effect that that has is our court systems are pretty clogged. Judges and lawyers are all trying to point people towards settling these cases rather than having them uh, adjudicated by a jury. What that does is it puts a cloud 
over the settlement discussions that the threat of punitive damages, whether or not there's any cause of action for those punitive damages or not that could be proven in a court of law, that cloud hangs over those negotiations. My bill was very simple. All it said was that you cannot, with your initial pleading, plead punitive damages until you convince the judge that there is a reasonable expectation that you would win uh, uh, an opportunity to apply punitive damages to the case. Mm-hmm. And, and that's done in a subsequent pretrial hearing before it actually goes to the jury. Um, and I think that what we would find is a real fair adjudication of punitive damages, that where punitive damages were clearly warranted in the case, that that's what we that that's what we wind up with, where there's no evidence of a punitive damages, the settlements will be much more fair. Do you? Are you, oh, oh, are, are you talking about any types of torts specifically? No. Okay. No, any it, types of torts. It, yeah, uh, any civil action mm-hmm. uh, where. Uh, you know, the classic punitive damages case is the old Ford Motor case with the Ford Pinto, which neither of you guys were probably ever around, of, may have never even seen a Ford what year Pinto. Was, when, what year was the last <laughs> Ford Pinto come out? I don't know, but my sister had one, and she graduated high school in 1972. Wow, so, so probably not. <laughs> yeah. I was born in 1984, <laughs> but maybe, yeah. maybe, the, maybe the past version of Jason Rosenbaum uh, drove a Pinto. I'm not sure. But, but so they, there was a... Uh, cases where they had designed the, the vehicle poorly and on a rear-end collision, the gas tank, which was near the back of the car, would explode and mm-hmm. kill people. Rather than um, g- recall the millions that they sold and fix the problem, which would have cost them tons of money, they rolled the dice and said, we'll settle the wrongful death suits that happen as a result. So clearly they acted in a way with willf- willful negligence of not protecting the public by continuing to produce these, these vehicles that way and not recall them. That's the classic case where punitive damages mm-hmm. is warranted. But now every, nearly every action uh, against an employer um, will include punitive damages before any discovery. They don't know if there's any cause of action for punitive damages, which means that the settlement negotiations that they enter into almost immediately have this punitive damages threat over them, sometimes warranted, oftentimes not. I would have to imagine this is one of the bills that's going to have an easier time being implemented with a Republican governor, especially when you replace that re- the, a Democratic governor who is friendly with attorneys and, and trial attorneys. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair to say. Fair to say. I think we'll see tort reform move uh, type bills move much easier. Thank you very much for coming in. We appreciate the discussion on a whole range of topics, and we'll be watching what you do in the legislature very carefully. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Dury on Twitter at? At Dury B. I don't think you're on Twitter, but is there any other way we can find you on the World Wide Web? Uh, I actually... Am on at Twitter, but I'm not. Uh, I'm not a big. I'm not a big tweeter. Yeah. So. Do you have a Facebook page or a website or yeah. something mm-hmm. like that? Yeah, it's just my Facebook page. Mm-hmm.